0: I'm speaking with Emmy-winning composer Jeff Sonelli, who is also one of my favorite composers. Uh, some of his work includes uh, the acclaimed, acclaimed miniseries like Into the West and The Pacific. He's also scored hit films like Disturbia, Hitman, Secret Window, uh, Ghost Town, Outlander, and The Odd Life of Timothy Green. Uh, Jeff just scored the TV film Killing Kennedy, starring Rob Lowe, as well as the upcoming Christmas in Conway, starring Mary Louise Parker, Mandy Moore, and Andy Garcia. Jeff, uh, so great to talk again. Likewise, thanks for having me. So we've talked before, and in our past interviews, we've discussed kind of your backgrounds and and stuff like that. So let's go ahead and uh, jump into "Killing Kennedy," which recently uh, aired on National Geographic. Sure. And uh, so, it, s- sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it did, and uh, yeah,
1: I was I was gonna just brag for a second. It didn't just air; we we actually had a record viewership for the channel, so it was it was a rousing success for National Geographic and for uh, you know for Nelson McCormick who directed it and. Um, Anyway, uh, so yes, we were well watched.
0: Oh, well, that's great! I mean, that's that's awesome. And you and it just re-aired, I think, uh, recently for the anniversary, right?
1: That's correct. Yes, I think they've aired it every week
0: uh, since it debuted, and
1: I know they're gonna show it again uh, in December. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think they found uh, they found the topic that resonates, and obviously the timing couldn't be better. But um, but uh, regardless of that, I think it's just a, it's a good movie. So right. people are watching.
0: And so, yeah, November 22nd, it was, it was the 50th anniversary of uh, Kennedy's assassination. And, and this film explores that time in Kennedy's life up to and after uh, that time. And so, that, I mean, this moment in history is some of the most discussed, debated, examined, uh, you know, things. And so what do you think the fascination, I think, with Kennedy is as, you know, as us, as people, as storytellers? Why do we continue to examine and explore it, especially through film?
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, there's there's certainly a romance to, uh, you know, the Kennedy family, which is, I, I suppose, in a, in a, in a way, sort of the closest we have to like a royal family. In a way, mm-hmm. um, I I think there's what, what makes it so interesting and sort of uh, relatable is that it just feels like, you know, Kennedy and their and uh, his family and his brothers, they're living a, you know, sort of a bigger life than, say, you or me, but they still feel approachable and human, and, you know, they have uh, glaring flaws and outstanding uh, great qualities, and, you know, I I guess it's sort of a, um, it's a way of looking at ourselves, you know, and I think, I I realize how sort of cliche that sounds, but it's true, and and then when you kind of circle that with the, uh, you know, the numerous plausible theories as to what would have gone into the the assassination, I think it becomes an even more, uh, you know, I don't know, it's just a, it's an endlessly fascinating story. But I'm, I'm sure, you know, most of the people who watched the show were not sure when they tuned in uh, whether or not it was going to go into the various conspiracy theories, and that was sort of outside the scope of a 90-minute program. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, the sense that I'm getting, a lot of people are saying it's, it's refreshing to watch a show about Kennedy that doesn't go into that, you know? So I, I suppose in some bizarre way, they're just presenting, you know, the uh, the official truth of what happened, mm-hmm. and people are actually just happy to see that for a change.
0: So the, is, is the film is told through, is it his point of view?
1: Well, and no, it's actually a, it's sort of a parallel story. It's telling uh, as much Lee Harvey Oswald's story as Kennedy, mm-hmm. and so, you, you know, you're following their... Um, I guess, the various milestones in each of their lives. And in some ways, uh, they sort of contrast with each other and are sort of synchronous, you know what I mean? there's while, um, while Kennedy is running for president, Lee Harvey Oswald is trying to renounce his citizenship. And, you know, then they're both having children at the same time. And then, you know, so it's really a sort of a a contrasting story of two completely different people who are on this collision course,
0: and, you know, and we all
1: know how it ends and just the way we knew how a Titanic ended too. Right. But, but it's, what's interesting about it is how do you tell the story, mm-hmm. you know? So, so it's not necessarily through uh, Kennedy's eyes. It's actually more, um, you know, through the audience's eyes. Just we're watching Oswald and we're watching Kennedy on this
0: sort of, well, on the collision course. Mm-hmm. So what what attracted you as a composer uh, for the story? What kind of musical opportunities did you see and what did you end up taking for the for the story?
1: Right. Well, the main thing was
0: the Oswald story mm-hmm. because
1: I I thought well, this is a really unique challenge because if I say to you I'm scoring a movie about a, a misunderstood loner who just wants people to listen to him and take him seriously and respect his big ambitions and he wants what's best for the country, you know, I'm, you're hearing a totally different story than the Lee Harvey Oswald story. Right. So what's interesting to me is how do I play you know, really the, one of the biggest villains in American history without creating some sense of sympathy for the character. That's obviously not the goal. Mm-hmm. The goal is to just tell the story. So so I thought, well that's, that's a huge challenge. How do, I, how do I go and do that and how do I make it you know, uh, emotional, but you're not you're not taking his side. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? That's that would that would be a, a, obviously a gigantic uh, <laughs> mistake in how to present a story like this. So, so that was the main thing. I thought, well, this is this is a character that's just so, you know, this this person actually existed, and how do you how do you go in and, and kind of
0: create musically the noise
1: that's in that guy's head?
0: That's what that's what attracted me. Did uh? But you didn't want to villainize him. Did you try to villainize him or no?
1: Well, no, and, and I'm I'm really cautious. I I also didn't want to humanize him because that's not the right word, you know. Right, it's, yeah. it's because then you start. Because as soon as you do that, you become, you know, you really run the risk of being sympathetic. Mm-hmm. I was trying to, I don't know, I don't know the word. I was trying to <laughs> be like genuine to his story. Right. Because this is, you know, this is a twisted person, but he was self righteous. He absolutely convinced. Himself that he was doing the right thing, right. you know. He he thought he'd be let off the hook when everybody realized just what a great thing he did for the country. He, he thought that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- this is a this is a twisted mind. But at the same time, also not making a horror movie because it's this is a true story. This happened, right? You know. So, so that's um, I guess that's the way I would describe it. And I suppose the approach I ended up taking really was to be. Like a little bit more, I want to say like intellectual, with how I played his music.
0: Right, right. You know,
1: because like I'm saying, I was I was avoiding trying to tell the viewer how to feel emotionally about the character, and instead going, you know, this is this is the person, this is his methodical precision, this is his thought process, and to me that means you got to get right inside his head. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just play the surface of the picture; you have to play what is. You know, really, truly, what is the noise that guy hears when he tries to fall asleep at night?
0: Wow, well, that's fascinating. Uh, just, just the whole kind of psychological approach. Uh... Yeah, and
1: you have to, you know, sometimes we have to go and get dark.
0: <laughs> right. So So, so. You, to put yourself, uh, did you really have to put yourself in kind of that mental state to kind of understand his character?
1: Well, you know, I, I would say probably not to the extent that, uh, the actor will rothar had to
0: right. to
1: play the part you know because he actually really did have to commit to being sympathetic to to that guy 's story right, and
0: right. you know I had a,
1: a conversation with him, and you hear his interviews and and he has he had to take a different approach but um but I would say you know i 'm not immune to the material you, you know what i mean i 'm working on something like this it 's dark it mm-hmm. really is cerebral and it 's sort of exhausting and and um it does get under your skin, and it does keep you up at night. Or at least it does to me. Uh, but at the same time, look, I know that if I play the wrong chord, nobody dies. You know, there's there's much less at stake than what, what was actually happening. You know, with um, with someone who would go and murder the president. Mm-hmm. But it's still, um, you know, it it does affect you, and you carry it with you when you're when you're in a project. You know, by the way, we we probably talked about this uh, during the Pacific too. Very similar in, right. in that regard, it's you know obviously I didn't go and fight a war, but you know you're trying to honor a, a, a true story and and in fact, so many of the people who lived this story, whether they were just regular you know citizens or people who knew Kennedy, are still around, so you know you can't go and you don't want to go and be disrespectful, but you are trying to like bring that story into two thousand and thirteen for you know always conscious of the fact that for some people this will be the first movie they ever see about kennedy
0: right so and you know. so yeah talking about that kind of balancing what it you know it is a real story and everything and i and this is not a documentary yeah. and i've but i've talked to composers who score docs and they say that since you know those stories and people are real it sort of affects you and how this feeling of responsibility you have you know when you're telling this story but now since you're watching rob lowe portray jfk were you looking at jfk as specifically the character in this film? Or would you, keep, you keep in mind that he was, you know, the former president of the United States who was assassinated oh. as a family? Right, I see what you mean. I, I suppose I would say I was thinking of it as as the
1: character in this film. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is because, you know, Rob, I thought he did something very brilliant. He didn't just go and do a JFK impression and right. read the lines in that accent. We all, you know what I mean? It, he just went, this is the essence of the character or really specifically this is the essence of the story we're telling about the character. And he played that. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course he does the accent and of course he does, you know, all of that, but it goes so far beyond that, you know. Right, right. So to me, I was I, I always think you're scoring you're scoring the film, you're telling the story that's there. You know, and obviously you can go and dive and dig around for subtext, but I wasn't really gonna yeah. like handcuff myself to you know, the mythology of JFK outside the scope of the, of the movie. Well, really actually to put it more succinctly in both Lee Harvey Oswald and JFK's music, the goal was to play the man, not the myth, you know, at all times really. And, And that's, that's actually the other thing people say, aside from, you know, that we didn't dive into the conspiracy side of this event, people say they're really surprised at just how, um, uh, the word, I hear people say the word intimate, but you know, like personal. The story actually is there's a lot of interaction with uh, JFK and Jackie. It's a lot of interaction with Lee Harvey Oswald and Marina, his wife, and it's it becomes like really, really in depth about who who the people were, who were you know the the key players. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think well, it's, I just thought that was another interesting thing. We we think of it as this enormous event, which it was. But it also happened to, you know, down at the essence of the story. It's about two people, not the entire country. But of course,
0: it has enormous
1: impact on, well, world history really. But of course, American history.
0: Absolutely, and it's a, a fascinating yeah. exercise, I think, for for you as a filmmaker and a storyteller and everyone involved. I think it's, uh, I think that's what kind of what film is for, you know. <laughs> and uh... absolutely, definitely. And so, trying to not to kind of switch gears pretty radically, you're also kind of the other side of the spectrum. You're scoring ABC's Christmas and Conway. Uh. Yes, I am. <laughs> right, so. Well, look, I'm a rangy guy.
1: <laughs> but uh, it's also, you know what? it is. It is really nice to sort of. Uh, I don't know what the word is I always like that I get to shift gears and I've been very very lucky <laughs> in that regard I get to put on a new hat
0: every couple of months no so. absolutely and I think it's at your versatility <laughs> yeah. and you, know, you can do something as touching and and brilliant as odd life and do something heavy and emotional like Pacific or in this case you know Killing Trinity sure. and Christmas and Conway which airs december 1st uh on abc that's right so now christmas movies are in a genre of their own we're getting into that time of year and everything does the term christmas movie affect your creative process at all does that idea of christmas influence your writing or are you kind of just like okay this is the story this is the characters it doesn't matter if it's christmas easter or whatever i'm just going to score it as it were right well where i started uh with the
1: score for Christmas in Conway was, was just that. I said, this is actually a story, very touching story, about a terminally ill woman whose husband, you know, as a, as a gift to her, uh, builds a Ferris wheel in the backyard, and, you know, because she's not immobile now. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, to me, that's, that's the story. And, you know, forget Christmas for a second. You know, and I think I got as far as I could with the score doing it that way. And then at a certain point, you go, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone's decorating their lawn and everybody, you know, right. <laughs> you got to start, you got to maybe sneak some of that in. But I, I was reliant as much as possible on the uh, on the setting and the look of the film to do Christmas, because to me, that that wasn't necessarily what the story's about. Um, but yes, yes, you're going to hear a few nods here and there towards Christmas.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's uh, inevitable. It's a little... little... Bells. And <laughs> <women>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose it is. Is it? Uh, is it? T- especially with those movies, there. I think there's a fine line between really getting kind of you know emotionally sentimental or kind of overly uh, saccharine and schmaltzy. Is it is it difficult to kind of make sure you don't tip over into a little bit kind of melodramatic uh, overdoing it type? Phase? Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. a lot actually, and that, and that is always a dangerous side. And you know, I think I was relying pretty heavily on my experience with *Odd Life* of Timothy Green, where we, you know, you would be surprised how. Well, you probably wouldn't because you know you're very smart about film music, but I think most people would be very surprised at just how little it takes to cross that line. Mm. You know, it's it's such a subtle thing, and so, you know, I did I did my best with uh, with Christmas and Connery to not get melodramatic but you know there, there are moments when you don't really need music where you, you think you might because there's a performance and you know in, in the acting or something where you just don't have to go in and start making a comment right. um, and that's probably the main way you can avoid melodrama is to just not play but uh, there are other times when you know you just you just have to try to do everything with as light a touch as you can and and, um, and well that's certainly what I tried to do <laughs> remains to be
0: seen if I succeed <laughs> well I mean it has a great cast and uh, you know it's uh, it does, one yeah. of those perfect times of the year to, for a movie like that and uh, um, but you've also you know, so you've done these two films which are were made for television um, so and they premiered on television which is a different format than you know a theater uh, does Does that does that does that like do you have to consider commercial breaks, uh, acts out, and stuff like that, kind of like a TV series, or does that kind of not apply to a movie? You just kind of make it, and they just fit it to their format.
1: Well, yes, there's a little bit of um, sort of logistics or something because I do know where the commercials are going to be, and Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, so I would kind of tailor the the cues a little bit. But I have to say, you you do notice the way certain movies are made in something like Kennedy um, or Into the West, when I go way back, you know, right. you don't the act breaks don't feel like so, I don't know the word, they they feel more filmic. You know what I mean? Like the both of those projects sure. or the Pacific certainly, you know, I, I think you could have run the Pacific in a movie theater if it were, <laughs> if it were only two hours long instead of 10, you know, <laughs> because it's, it just feels like a film, you know? So, so, and I do think that there's just a difference in, style of filmmaking. You know, sometimes you see a movie made for television that is just committed to being a, a movie that's made for television. In the case of Kennedy, though, you know, we have international versions where they don't run commercial breaks. Hmm. And, um, you know, so in fact, actually, for the, for the uh, com- Jeff Spinelli completists out there, there, there exists a, two versions of the film. You know, so they they would be written across as opposed to having an act out. So that's wow. like a whole other thing. But but the show was designed to work that way, which is why I don't think the act breaks in Kennedy feel uh, they don't feel as much like an act break. You know, right, right. I think you'd find Christmas and Conway's a little more chaptered and it does feel like that. And it's just a different style of filmmaking. So. Right.
0: Right. So yeah. and, and so, congratulations on those two projects. Um, those are thank two, you. two big accomplishments. And but I also wanted to, before we end, to touch on the Lone Ranger, which is my favorite movie of the summer. And I know you had a very big role in it. Oh, great! And uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, it was a big news story for the wrong reasons. But I loved it, <laughs> <laughs> and I think your arrangement of the William thank Tell you. Overture is superb. Um, so thank you, uh, Hans Zimmer did the score, and you you have a last, you know, collaboration and friendship with Hans and it's an incredibly big bold thematic kind of western action score which I love. It's westerns are my favorite genre. Um but the entire oh, final action sequence is set to the, you know, iconic William Tell overture used in the original arca- ar- incarnation of the Lone Ranger. So was that intimidating to approach such a well-known piece of music like that? <laughs> well, I'm laughing because it should have been but it wasn't. I I I
1: don't know how to play this really. Um, because here's the thing, like, I, and I worked on it for a long time. And, and Gore had called me and said, you know, why don't I build you a studio right next to my cutting room and let's work on just the finale for you know weeks, really.
0: Uh-huh. And so I
1: did that. I, I was you know sharing a wall with him, and I'd go over there and we'd go back and forth all the time about it and start kind of developing a sonic world and. And just really assembling the sequence because it's, you know, it's a mammoth task and it's, you know, probably the most tightly synchronized piece of music I've ever done. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of nuts and bolts in there. So, um, but I have to say, I approached it with a certain amount of recklessness that I thought was appropriate. Um, and that's sort of emboldened by having Gore as a director because he's fearless. You know, he does, he's, he's, a little bit left of center. He still write, makes movies that are accessible to huge amounts of people, but, you know, he, he can take you to places that I don't think other directors can do, especially in, like, a big blockbuster movie. Absolutely. You know, and that's what, that's what resonated with Pirates. Everybody went, well, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> that was supposed to be a movie based on a ride at Disneyland. And it, <laughs> you, know, it into, you know, it turned into the one of the biggest franchises we have. Absolutely. So, so you know, I... I've, and it, this was the fifth movie I've done with him, by the way, so it was like and with Jerry Bruckheimer, too, so it's you know it was it was sort of like getting the band back together uh with with Hans and Jerry and Gore, but I go into you know the William Tell overture thinking you know we need we're gonna wait until the end of the movie to really play this tune or kinda kind of hint at it throughout mm-hmm. the movie, but when we finally get there, okay, we know how to start. We're just going to start exactly as it, right? Right. And, but it only takes about eight seconds before it has to deviate. <laughs> and so then, and you anyway, know, and then you've still got 12 minutes and 48 seconds to go. So, so it was a lot of, I mean, we tried everything. You know, we were moving, the, the piece of music is actually very modular. Uh, it's all really two-bar phrases the whole way through. And so we were just rearranging them like, like mad really and going, well, where, where can we put that one? Where does it work? Where doesn't it work? And it was really just a, um, like a, uh, a very long process of, of trial and error, <laughs> plenty of error. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, and then it just started to kind of gel. And it, it was a strange thing because it felt, it felt like it was nowhere near finished until the day it was done. Suddenly, you know, do you know what I mean? Like it was, right. it took, um, a certain amount of wrangling. The way I put it to, um, to people in the film was it's like moving the Golden Gate Bridge two inches to the left, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it, because it does. As soon as you start moving any of the, the sink in that piece, things start to crumble, you know? And we were always going for, like, it, it should feel absurdly synchronous to the picture. You know, there was always the word absurdity was floating around a lot during Lone Ranger, and it was, in fact, it was one of the name of... Uh, one of the early pieces of music Khan was writing. Great, we were huh? trying to go and, uh, and, um, find a way of being just, you know, give them something different. And especially with the William tell where you've got a piece of music, everybody's heard a million times. So, so we've got to reinvent and we've got to go and take it somewhere. You know, I, I'm glad that you liked it. You know, I know that a lot of people really responded to that, um, sequence in particular. And it almost felt like it was, a sequence that lived independent of the rest of the movie somehow.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was, because it was just, uh, because the way Gore, I mean, makes his action sequence, I kind of compare it to kind of the, yeah. the Maelstrom <laughs> sequence at the end of Pirates 3. It's just this big, sure. and, almost yeah. like an orchestrated dance and it's like just, uh, for the, for the, filmmaker and me it's it's you know just feeling it keep on going and building and building and building and, and, and you know talk about moving the golden gate bridge it's just a, it's one big moment like huge piece and so it was just uh yeah fantastic yeah. so what and but also you're working in the you're trying to work in the soundscape of hans's score so did you really have to kind of make it feel part of the the world that hans created that for the lone ranger that sound uh
1: well you know I would say I did, but not at first, because actually, if you're looking at the timeline of things, I was starting on the finale of um, Lone Ranger before Hans was ready to start writing the score, so I was Mm -hmm. already kind of building that sequence out, and what ended up happening is, you know, I I knew, well, we're going to need, we're going to have a theme for this, so I was, you know, not to be technical, but I was sort of just... Putting in a placeholder because I'm right. yeah I needed Hunter a tune <laughs> you know what I mean <laughs> but I knew there was I knew we were gonna jump out of the William Tell here and I knew we were gonna try this and try that so what actually happened was I would built the I guess the structure of the piece and then would start going at, you know putting in like the silver theme for instance makes a huge appearance at the end when he catches the bullet and, and right. um, so once that went in it then this is the thing you put it in and all of a sudden it feels like two different pieces of music. So now you've got to go back through the beginning parts of it. And, you know, it, so yes, I did at some point apply the sound of the rest of the score. I, I think you're wrong not to, but, oh, yeah, yeah. uh, but that was
0: not day one. And, uh, does, you know,
1: does that make sense?
0: Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, uh, but he, he I think you'd mentioned that. So you, did you do kind of like a sketch first? And then Gore went and kind of, because you made it tailored, really tailored it to the sequence. Did he shoot it? And then did you come back and kind of, Tighten it to make it fit yeah. more. Yes, that's right. Actually, um, I, I sort of left out a whole chunk of time. Uh, about a year before
1: the um,
0: the score was ever
1: written. Uh, in fact, it was before they shot the movie. What Gore started doing because he has to do it too. He had to map out that whole sequence.
0: Right.
1: He did what's called an animatic, where he had a very sort of a very rough CGI version mm-hmm. of the entire scene. Now, um, and he had me take the William Tell. Uh, In fact, actually what happened was was, I think the animatic was only about eight minutes long or nine, and they were trying to just sort of roughly, uh, you know, with the music editors kind of chop in the William Tell overture. And Obviously they found out, well, there's only about two minutes of it that everybody associates with the Lone Ranger theme, and you can't just loop it. (laughs) So I got a call uh, really, you know, a year before. It was long before they even shot the movie. And Gore said, do you think you can help? And so I did a certain amount of pre-planning, but, you know, that all goes out the window when you shoot the actual movie. Because, you know, it, for one thing, it, it becomes longer and everything's sort of grander and epic. And, you know, when I say, like, we're we're in sync, you know, frame by frame. Well, but now the sequence is, you know, just stretched out. That means a whole lot to the music. Right. <laughs> so it was. It really was a do-over at a certain point. But we at least were, you know, that I would call that like a proof of concept. You know, mm-hmm. we're going... Does the william Tell overture work here and I think if I were to ever dig up that piece, I would think it was probably uh more adherent to the original William Tell overture at that point point. Hmm. and then you know and then as we get deeper into it, obviously we had our our new you know themes that Hans had written that we needed to be incorporated so
0: right right well it's uh it's it's a grand film it's big it's it's just uh and it's not bad i don't know why that has spread all around the internet and everything (laughs) thank you for saying that and uh, i agree with you totally i know anyone who's listening to this if you're a fan of leone of uh you know those big westerns it's a it's a must-see it's on blu-ray december 17th so you gotta you gotta give it a chance everyone needs to give it a chance (laughs) yeah yeah i was I was really surprised. I have to say, I, I, I still believe it's a good film. So. It is. Um, well, Jeff, uh, thank you for chatting today so much. It's been great to catch up and, and talk about your recent projects, and it's always a pleasure and an honor.
1: Likewise. Thank you,
0: and, and uh, I think we shall have plenty to talk about next year, so
1: I look forward to speaking again.
0: Absolutely.